Kai Guy coming to Not Live from New Hampshire. And today, well, today I'm going to be talking with Ambassador Richard Sweat, who I had the pleasure of meeting when he and his wife, Katrina Lantos, a prominent human rights activist, invited me to dinner at their house. Um, it was a really enjoyable dinner, and I don't have much else to say, so let's just jump right in. Good afternoon, Ambassador Sweat. Would you mind introducing yourself? So my name is Richard Sweat, and uh, I grew up in the Lakes region. I, I'm uh, a product of New Hampshire public schools, I used to say, in my political campaigns. But um, I now live in Bow, uh, where I have lived for the past 33 years. And I uh, practice architecture here, but my work is primarily all over the world, um, particularly in Africa. Um, interestingly enough, I've been all over Ukraine and I was in Ukraine for the, the Orange Revolution when they first voted for their independence. And uh, now we can see that uh, there are real problems that are going to take a lot of work to solve uh, in that poor country. Well, we will get back to that at some point during this interview. So thank you for joining me today. You're uh, very welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So you've had some very notable jobs throughout your career. Uh, the first one I'm going to talk about is ambassador. Uh-huh. You're ambassador to Denmark, correct? That's correct. So when were you the ambassador to Denmark? I was ambassador to Denmark from 1998 to 2001. And to you, that probably seems like uh, a thousand years ago. <laughs> so... Which administration was that under? I was in the Clinton administration. That, that's pretty cool. So how much time did you spend in Denmark as an ambassador? Well, um, my family of, of seven children and I lived in Denmark for three years. And uh, uh, I have a daughter that then uh, married and, and three of her four children were born in Denmark. They've lived in Denmark over eight years. And I have another daughter who ended up serving a mission for our church for a year and a half. So we have a lot of uh, quasi-Danes, I guess you could say. My, my two daughters are, and, and uh, my oldest daughter's family are all fluent in Danish. So it's, it's kind of fun to listen to them sit around and talk. My Danish has long since evaporated. So were there any large events happening in the world at this time? There were, and that's actually a very good question. Um, one of the biggest events at that time was the Kosovo War. Um, and that was uh, a, a time when the Serbians were um, killing uh, the Muslims in the former Soviet, the former uh, Yugoslav Republic. And uh, there was a great deal of, of activity because the NATO nations were uh, participating in defending uh, the people um, in Kosovo. And so the Danes, as a member of NATO, were participating. And it was interesting because Denmark is a very small country of only five and a half million people. Uh, they were one of the few countries that were fully responsible for their share of the NATO expenses. And they also have uh, a small air force comprised of F-16s. Uh, one of which I flew while I was ambassador, but um, uh, she, they um, used those F-16s uh, for sorties uh, over Kosovo back uh, when the Kosovo War was being waged. So another one of your 
most notable jobs is um, was being a representative, right? That's correct. I was the um, U.S. Congressman from the New Hampshire Second uh, Congressional District. I still can't get over the fact that you flew an F-16, but back well, to my... A, but I, I have to tell you the story behind that because it's kind of fun, and I think your listeners and viewers would, would really enjoy that. So uh, every year, uh, uh, countries around the world have big air shows, and uh, there's, of course, one of the most internationally renowned air show is the one in Paris every July. Um, but Denmark uh, does an air show and the, and the, the best uh, team of flyers at any of these air shows are always the Americans. And we have two, uh, two teams that go around flying at these air shows. One are the, uh, the Blue Angels and the other are the Thunderbirds. And the Blue Angels are the Navy team and the Thunderbirds are the Air Force team. And um, this year, uh, that I'm about to describe um, happened to be a year that the US wasn't coming to Denmark, but three other countries had, you know, Britain, France, you know, there were other countries that, that would send their, their teams. And I got a call one night from a frantic general of the Air Force in Denmark. And he called me and he said, Ambassador Sweat, I have a, a favor that I will do anything to you, uh, for you if you, if you can grant. And I said, well, I don't know that you'd need to, you know, um, make promises like that, but I'll be happy to listen and see what I can do. And he said, well, uh, three of our uh, teams um, that were going to fly at our air show uh, canceled on us and we have no one to fill them. And, and I was just wondering, can you get one of either the Blue Angels or the, the Thunderbirds, can you get them to come and participate in our air show? And I said, well, that's a pretty tall order. Um, and, and he said, yeah, we'll do anything. And I said, you mean you'd like, you'd let me fly an F-16? And we all laughed. And I thought it was a big joke. And that was that. And so I went to work and, and um, long story short, I was able to get the Thunderbirds to come. They were in uh, one country and they could fly over Denmark on their way to another country. And they stopped in and they did, they did the show and they did a marvelous job. And we all thought it was really exciting and, and quite wonderful. And then that was that. Well, then it was uh, 2001 and my, my term as ambassador was coming to a close and it was like March in 2001 and I get this phone call and it's the general and he says, I need to talk to you. And I said, well, what do, you, what do you want to talk about? He says, well, I need to know when you can do your physical. And I said, what do you mean my physical? And he said, I want to give you a chance to fly one of our F-16s and you have to take a physical to make sure that you're physically fit. Well, I had run marathons and all sorts of things. So I was... I was physically fit, but I still had to do the physical. And I said, whoa, I, this, sounds, this sounds cool. I, I'll do this. So I got my physical. And uh, after a very difficult uh, scheduling program, I finally got uh, scheduled in May or, or June uh, to get my physical. And then in June to do the, the uh, flight. And um, so I was picked up at a small air base just north of where the embassy residence was located, right along the Gold Coast of, of uh, Denmark, which is right on the Oresund, which is the Golden Sound between Denmark and Sweden. And he picked me up in a small, low-wing, single uh, two-seater, and the pilot and and I got got in the I got in the plane with the pilot, and it had one of those bubble tops on it, and you know we left the top open. And, and we took off. And uh, I um, had grown up in small planes because my father had a license when he was um, in business. 
and I used to fly with him and he would let me fly when we were, um, you know, going from here to there uh, to his job sites in New England. And um, so the, the pilot let me fly the plane. And when we got over Verlusa, which is the, um, the um, place where the, uh, uh, the air base was located on the Yulin Peninsula, uh, he said, okay, I'm gonna take the controls and we're gonna do some maneuvers. And I said, okay, that's fine with me. And so he does a loop to loop and he's looking at me and he does a barrel roll and he's looking at me. And then he does the most radical move that you can do, which is called a split S. When you fly the plane and if you're being followed by, by another plane, you flip your plane upside down. And before the other plane can adjust to that, you dive straight for the earth. And then you come around underneath and you end up behind the plane that was behind you. And it's a very radical move, but in a little single in a little single engine, you know, low wing, open cockpit, two seater, it felt like a roller coaster ride. <laughs> and and he, and he's looking at me. And I finally said, "So what are you looking at me for?" And he says, "Well, I have to see how you respond to these different maneuvers because in an F sixteen, you're going to be hitting nine Gs. You're not going to be hitting four Gs or you know three or four Gs like you like in this little plane." And I said, so did I pass the test? He said, you pass with flying colors. So we flew in, we went into the air base. And so everything that had to do with the US ambassador always had a lot of uh, celebration, protocol, ceremony, et cetera. So of course that night we have a big dinner and everybody's in black tie and everybody's in naval uniforms and all that sort of thing. And, um, but before we had that dinner, the afternoon was spent fitting me with my flight suit, my, my, press, my pressure suit. Um, so uh, when you fly an F-16, you wear clothing that will inflate with air and put pressure on your, um, on your legs and, and your extremities, because what it does is it keeps all the blood in your, in your um, uh, uh, main cavity and in your head. Otherwise, you'll black out. And so I got fitted with all these things. And also then what they would do is, is they put me on this 20 foot tower, clipped the cable to me. I had a dry suit on a helmet and, and, I'm, and I'm sitting in a, in a jet seat, you know, from, the, from one of the F-16s. And they would yank me off the tower, the 20 foot tower. I fall into this pond of water. I start being dragged across the pond. And I, within 30, 30 seconds, I have to unclip myself unclip my um, my seat from me, open up um, uh, open up the um, uh, inflatable raft, pull the, the cord that makes the raft inflate, turn on the little semaphore light that, that shows if it's a nighttime where I'm located, and then crawl in the raft and wait to be um, picked up by, by the um, uh, rescue helicopter. Um, but I'm not, not picked up by the rescue helicopter. They just, you know, they just drag me over to the edge of the pool and then they make me go back up and do it one more time because we're going to do the flight over the North Atlantic and over the North Atlantic, there are major winds. You hit the, the water, your parachute could still be open. And you're being dragged across the water at 20 miles an hour. You got to be able to get all this stuff off you and into the raft and all of that. And so that was the, that was the most intense part of the, of the training. Then we went to the black tie, you know, formal dinner. And then the next morning we had a pre-flight brief where I and, and my pilot who was going to fly in the, in the trainer plane with me, um, you know, were there. And then we had the crew of the other plane that was going to the other jet, the F-16 that was going to fly with us. 
uh, in that. And then they described what we would do. And we would fly out over the North Atlantic to two quadrants that they had cleared so that there's nobody else in the area. And then we would do what was what was called an engaged um, uh, uh, dogfight, where we know who's going to be in, fur in the front and who's going to be in the back. And then we would do a non-engaged dogfight where we would go in and there would be a scramble and we would see who ended up where and, and so forth. And so, uh, and then as we flew back to the opposite ends of the quadrant, these are big, huge, you know, 100 miles by 100 miles quadrants. Um, I, that was when I would get to fly the F-16. So we, we get in the planes after the, the briefing. I got my pressure shoot on. I got the helmet. I got my, my camera in my hand. I'm ready to take pictures all over the place while I'm not flying and, and having to control the plane. And we take off and we are literally flying wingtip to wingtip. I mean, it's, there's not a meter between the wingtips. And then we rotate still within the, you know, the same distance of the wingtips and we're flying upside down. Then we go one on top of the other, then we rotate like that. It was just amazing. And we're doing this as we fly out to the, uh, fly out to the North Atlantic. Then we get there and we do the dogfights. And we're using, you know, it's, computer, it's like a computer game for you. You probably do better than I, than I could do. But you know they, you know we we could we could see the 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 missiles being shot at them and you know and if they if they were on target you know the plane would blow up on the screen not in real life, and um, and then we would disengage and and head to the opposite ends and that was when I got to fly and we we did uh, barrel rolls loop to loops and all kinds of maneuvers it was so cool. And then we came back in and we and we did the the random engagement, and of course somehow we ended up uh, in front and 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 we had to do a split S to get out of it, and it was the most radical move. It was just unbelievable, and I came up. We came up behind the guy. We we fired all our, our tomahawks at him, and um and and he let and and they he dropped real chaff. So you know that's the. The, the stuff that they do to, to try and draw the tomahawks off course. And, uh, and then once we did that, we finished that, we turned to head back to the base. We went down to about 40 feet above the ocean and, and, did, and we broke the sound barrier uh, coming back on uh, 40 feet above the ocean, coming back. And um, when we got in towards the land, we, we rose up, you know, got sufficient clearance and then we did a bombing run on one of the buildings on the base, again, simulated. But it was radical because we had to dive in and we had to you know, drop the bombs and pull out and, and go in, in the other direction. And I'm in the, I'm in the jet and, and my head is like going bam, bam, bam with my helmet against the canopy because you know, I didn't realize just how rough and, and uh, jostled it would be. Um, and then we came in and we landed and, and that was that. Then we go into the, um, the debriefing and they had this all on video. And I really, I wish they could have given it to me because it's all top secret. So I asked for it. They said, no, no, we can't give it to you. It's top secret. So we came in, we watched the video and it was funny. In the background on the video was this, this some person was doing heavy breathing. And they're all laughing. And, and I finally said, what are you all laughing at? And they said, you hear that heavy breathing in the background? I was like, <gasps> <gasps> yeah, I said, yeah, I said, they, I said, yeah, they said, that's you. <laughs> and they're laughing. And, and it, 
but what was interesting was I didn't I didn't throw up. I didn't even really feel like throwing up, except that's what I was doing to keep my stomach settled. I don't get seasick. I don't get airsick. So, you know, it was I didn't think that I would. Um, but they said that some of the first recruits on their first flight, they go up, they're blowing lunch all over the canopy because they can't hold their food down. And uh, so they were very complimentary. And uh, so that was that was my experience uh, flying an F-16. I also flew a, a Black uh, a Black Hawk helicopter, um, not quite as radically as that. I, they, they let me fly it six feet above the ground for a half a mile down the length of a runway. And, and I was amazed at, at the precision that helicopter pilots are required. They got to think in three dimensions, up, down, left, right, and front, back. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. Um, and, and I also uh, paratrooped with the Eiger Corps, which is their version of our SEALs um, from 15,000 feet, which, which gave me um, a little over a minute of free fall amazing experiences and and they they work because of the nato coordination between the united states and and denmark there's a lot of coordination between these different branches of government and and so we flew we went up in a c-130 and that's the thing that has the back end opens up like a big garage door and all of a sudden the sky just opens to you and then the 30 of us all kind of trudge in a line to the lip and then roll out and it's just the most amazing feeling so those are some of the experiences that I, I got to have as an ambassador. It sounds like Top Gun. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. It was Top Gun Plus because it was real. I mean, yeah. you know, that was just so cool. So now back to my questions about being a representative. So yes, sir. how long or before were you a rep? Uh, I was elected in 1990. And um, I was 33 years old, so I was the eighth youngest member of Congress at the time. And I served until 1995 um, when I was defeated. That was when the Republicans took over the House of uh, Representatives for the first time in like 40 years. And Newt Gingrich had led the charge with a, a, a campaign that he called Contract with America. And it was interesting because I was a, a moderate Democrat. And unfortunately, when, when the, the House switched parties, it was because the political parties were becoming more and more extreme. And so the people who, who suffer the most are the reasonable members who are in the middle of the political spectrum. So 52 moderate Democrats lost that year which enabled the Republicans to take over the House. And ever since then, it has become more and more extreme. And that has been one of the, I ran originally in 1990 to stop that kind of extremism from happening, but um, I was unable to, and uh, here we are. So which job was your favorite? That's a very good question. And I would say, you know, the thing about politics is half of the community wants you out of office and they will do. And what I learned is that they, your opponents, your political opponents, they would rather the country suffer and they gain control than to see a worked about solution that is a compromise between both parties and the country benefit. And they still not have control. 
So it was it was very disappointing in that respect. But as a member of Congress, there's an awful lot that you can do. Um, you can bring attention to important issues and whatnot. I was the first Democrat elected in the second congressional district uh, since the sinking of the Titanic for 78 years. So it was it was a, an unusual uh, event. But um, I would say what I was able to do as a Cong as a as an ambassador was all positive because I was representing the country that I love. Um, I was working in a country that that had been our second longest um, ally uh, going back to the Revolutionary War. Um, the only old longer ally um, was Morocco, but we had some problems with the pirates back during the War of 1812 and, and the, uh, um, you know, uh, the uh, Jefferson's term. So they were not a consistent ally. Denmark has always been an ally and they always, I'm sure, always will be. But um, and so I'm working, supporting, I'm kind of like the mayor of all the Americans in Denmark. Plus, I represent Washington, D.C. to the Danish government in Copenhagen. Um, so it, it's a much more positive and a much more constructive um, uh, experience. And so I would say uh, from that perspective, plus you got a 15,000 square foot luxury mansion to live in, uh, full staff. I had butlers and, and maids and a, and a cook and a, a housekeeper, a full security force. So it was, it was a pretty neat experience. So Denmark has been an ally to the U.S. longer than like France? Longer than France, yes. Even though France did a great deal to, to help us win the Revolutionary War. That's a, a good, a good uh, comparison. Wow, I did not know that. Um, so what did you do before you were a representative and then ambassador? My original profession is as an architect. And the unique thing about architecture is that it's a very non-political profession. So I was the only architect to serve as a US member of the House of Representatives in the 20th century. Um, there are several that, architects started out as very influential people in society. We have people like Daniel Burnham and Frederick Law Olmsted who were planning you know, great cities like Chicago and, and uh, the Fenway in Boston or you know, the park systems uh, like Central Park in New York. That was Frederick Law Olmsted. But these were people who were also involved in the politics and the finance and the taxation and the creation of this country. And so they were much more well-rounded in that regard. It wasn't until 1919 when the professional association, the American Institute of Architects, decided they didn't want to have to do anything political anymore. They then decided they were just going to be architects, which really was almost like just being artists. And, uh, and the profession really lost a lot of influence. And so I've spent a great deal of my career trying to help the architecture profession become more politically involved because the one thing that architects have is they have the vision and understanding of how you build new communities. And that's what the world needs because there are 2 billion people that exist on this planet who are living in either the squalor of the slums of India or they are you know, in the bush of Africa, but they are not living in um, 
well-functioning, uh, profitable, economically strong uh, communities. And that's something that, that I'm working on and I'm drawing upon my architecture, political and, uh, and my um, uh, diplomatic experience to, to accomplish these kinds of projects. Oh, that's pretty interesting. I didn't know that architects used to be involved in anything. I probably would have thought of them the way that you described as them not being that involved in politics. Yeah. So back to the ambassador part of your career, what sure. did an ambassador entail? Well, um, as I said, you, you act a little bit like the mayor of the American community within the host country where you reside. But you also will negotiate and sign treaties that, that are not signed between the presidents. So for example, one of the treaties that I was involved in was uh, to protect the intellectual property uh, rights of American inventors in, uh, in Denmark and, and beyond Denmark in the European Union. And so, you know, those were, I was able to negotiate and, and uh, ultimately sign that particular treaty, not important enough for, for the president to sign and the prime minister, but um, I, was, I was involved in something like that. Uh, also, I, I worked uh, along with the, the Danes, as I mentioned earlier, in operating uh, their um, resources, their forces in the Kosovo War. And so, you know, from that perspective, it was a coordinated effort. So the ambassador um, is, is a, a messenger who provides the message from Washington, D.C. To the, to the government that they are being hosted by. Um, the ambassador works to protect American citizens. We, um, at our consulate, we would operate the visa department, which would give people the ability to travel to the United States if they were Danish or from the United States into Denmark if they were American. So there were a whole host of things. And, and then there was a lot of ceremonial um, representation where I would um, be the, the guest of honor at, uh, at dinners or, or big celebrations. I served on the Hans Christian Andersen uh, Committee, uh, Foundation Committee uh, in Denmark. For many years after I was ambassador, I would go back and, uh, and we celebrated his um, 200th anniversary um, in, in 2002. Uh, a year after I had uh, served as ambassador. Um, and, and so he's one of you know, the, the icons of, of Danish uh, uh, folklore, um, storytelling, et cetera. And, uh, uh, and the Danes are very proud of, of the legacy that he uh, left behind of, with stories like the Little Mermaid and the Ugly Duckling and things like that, that, that you probably remember being read to you or reading when you were younger. So that partly answers my next question about yes. do you still do any work or do any work in Denmark or with Denmark? Well, that's a, that's a good question because I had a daughter and her husband and therefore children who are living in Denmark. So whenever I flew to anywhere in the world, I always made sure I was flying through Copenhagen and I would leave a couple of days to, to, to work there. I also have led delegations in Denmark. Uh, as recently as two years ago, I led a delegation of uh, independent power producers or, or clean energy uh, developers who were very interested in Denmark because Denmark is one of the world leaders in wind power. And if you look at pictures of Copenhagen, <clears throat> you can see windmills across the Orsund, you know, and, and uh, uh, I think right now that up to 40% of Danish energy is actually produced 
um, by clean wind generating uh, windmills, or uh, they're also uh, using a lot of their agriculture waste. You know, Denmark is, everybody thinks of the Vikings when you think of Denmark, but they only comprised about 10% of the population. 90% of the population were farmers and they have some of the best farmlands in all the world. And they grow about three times as much food as they need for themselves. So they have a big um, export market. They're very good at, at uh, grain, uh, dairy products, and um, the Danish hams are world renowned. Um, and so the, the, the food that they have is, is quite fresh and, and quite delicious. So can you explain to me how the US structure of diplomacy works? Sure. You have the State Department is one of the cabinet members. So the Secretary of State is um, equivalent to a foreign minister in a parliamentary system. So the parliamentary system has ministries, the State Department, the, the U.S. government has departments. And the State Department is our um, uh, international relationship um, department. And the Secretary of State is the head person there. So. Um, a good friend of mine, Tony Blinken, is, is our current, um, our current um, Secretary of State in the Biden administration. Um, and he has under him about 237 uh, ambassadors. And each of those ambassadors, uh, approximately 30 of them are people like me who were political appointments. And then the other 207 or so are career. And they have spent their whole life working in the, as foreign service officers, starting out at the bottom of the pyramid and working their way up until um, at the pinnacle of their career, out of, say, 30,000 people, um, 200 of them become ambassadors in that, uh, in that process. So it's a very difficult and, uh, and long, uh, long time taking um, evolution. But, uh, and then there are some like us, and the reason I was chosen was because I was very helpful to Clinton on a number of things that were very, <clears throat> very dangerous and detrimental to my political career. Um, and when I ended up voting for legislation and being the last person to vote for the piece of legislation, uh, and it cost me my political career, he was, he was generous enough um, to give me an appointment as an ambassador. And so, um, you know, that, that was how the, the position came about for me. Um, but for, for the professional career people, they have demonstrated their leadership qualities, their understanding of, of uh, you know, the diplomatic uh, techniques that are necessary to improve the relationships between the United States and our allies and, and our enemies for that matter. And, and they work their way up the, the ladder that way. And then filling out that, so my embassy, I had 16 different departments. So I had members of the Department of Commerce. I had a representative from, um, let's see, uh, from uh, the Department of Agriculture because Denmark is such a big agriculture. Uh, I had members from the military. I had a, a detachment that was running the air base at, at Tula Air, air Base, um, which is about 400 kilometers from the North Pole, which I visited. Um, I was that close to the North Pole, didn't get any closer, but that was, it was really a fascinating, that's on Greenland. And, uh, and that's a US um, observation um, position watching for any possible incoming missiles from the, the former Soviet Union 
or any of its countries. And so we maintain those kinds of, of surveillance posts at these extreme locations in order to be sure that we are ready if, if something happens. And I guess nothing could be more important than those lookout posts uh, today because of the problems that we see in Ukraine. So, so there in Denmark, there were, two, there were 250 members of my staff from various different departments. And it was my responsibility to coordinate and to work with them to make sure that everybody was, was helping promote the United States as best as we could. And I was also able to do a um, successful promotion of New Hampshire uh, by bringing New Hampshire businesses over, signing contracts. And we ended up doing about $80 million worth of business with New Hampshire businesses and Danish businesses um, going both ways. So it was, it was a very um, good opportunity to help the, the people in New Hampshire as well. So now that's pretty impressive that you had 200 some people. Um, but so now that you've mentioned it, what do you think about what's going on in Ukraine? Well, it's, it's extremely um, frightening to be perfectly honest. Um, we have a leader in Russia, in uh, Putin, who is abusing uh, his power, uh, who has attacked, uh, unprovoked attacked Ukraine and done terrible damage, not only to the countryside and the buildings and the cities, but to the people themselves. Thousands of people are losing their lives because this man believes that he has the right to just arbitrarily plow into and, and roll over Ukraine. Well, two things have happened that, that have um, been encouraging. One is that he hasn't rolled over the country. They have not capitulated. And uh, it had, unlike his anticipation of it being a two-day war, um, it could be a two-year war. It could be a 10-year war. Um, and, and that is good and bad. It's good because it demonstrates the weaknesses of the Russian military and they continue to be stalled, they continue to be forced back, they continue to not be effective, um, but it also continues to wear and tear on the people of, of the uh, Ukrainian uh, country. And although there are three or four million refugees that have fled to Poland and to Romania and other countries on the Ukrainian border, um, they will have a significant number who are standing firm and defending the country and keeping the country free from being overrun by the Russians. And to do that, they need support from uh, countries like the United States where we're supplying them with Tomahawk missiles and with anti-tank guns and things that, that they can use in their defense. The problem is that if anyone from the United States or from Poland or the surrounding countries um, happen to be killed by an errant missile or even an intended direct hit. Um, that would invoke the fifth clause, clause number five in the, in the NATO constitution, which would mean that any country um, in NATO that is attacked is as if the entire, all the countries of NATO, 29 countries or so were attacked and they would band together to counter that attack. Um, right now, um, Putin threatens to use tactical nuclear weapons. 
Um, he has threatened to uh, invade Ukraine and followed through on that threat. So he has demonstrated that uh, he might be crazy enough to follow through on, on, the, on the threat of using nuclear force. That would change the whole dynamic of how the world is dealing with, with uh, Russia. Right now, um, in the United Nations, only five countries have really either supported or abstained uh, uh, and not voted against what Russia is doing. Out of 140 some odd other countries, member countries, that have condemned what he has done. Uh, he has been condemned as a war criminal. He has been condemned as someone who has, has done uh, detrimental things that that uh, are not in the interest of the the world peace that the United Nations was set up to uh, ensure. So we are all looking at and very carefully watching what he does, uh, and hope that that he and at the end of the day will realize that he cannot defeat NATO. He cannot take over Ukraine, and that nobody is telling him that he cannot exist within his own boundaries and Russia. But he has no right, no right whatsoever, to uh, to do the kind of destruction and, and killing that he is is carrying on at the moment. Yeah, it's pretty horrible what's happening there. So, what were the largest challenges that you faced in the jobs that we've talked about? I'll tell a story about that one um, because it's it's an interesting story. So, one evening we were during the Kosovo War, and as I mentioned. The Danes were um, our allies. NATO was, was working to try and stop the killing that the Serbs were doing on the Muslims. I had two families that were visiting us. We always had visitors from the States and, and uh, they came and stayed at, at, our, um, at our residence. And we had decided to go out to dinner and we decided we were gonna do Tex-Mex. We we're gonna go down to just off a, a block and a half off of the town square, Ruhausplatz as it's called in Danish. And we were going to have a nice Tex-Mex dinner at, at Rosie Marie's. So we get there and you could see down the block and a half that there was a huge crowd on the, on the, on the uh, uh, Rulatsplatz, at the town square. And they were all, it appeared that they were all holding candles. And, and we thought, oh, this is interesting. And I asked my, my uh, security guard, um, who were also the, uh, like the secret service that, that provide the, um, the uh, cover for the security for the royal family, because uh, Den uh, Denmark is a, is a monarchy, a constitutional monarchy. They've had, they've had uh, uh, a king or a queen for a thousand years or, or longer. Anyway, they said, well, this is, that's just a demonstration against the, the uh, Kosovo war. And so that was that. And then we went into the restaurant, we sat down, we started having our meal, we were watching um, a, a soccer game, football game on the screen, it was Israel playing Denmark at the local stadium, which we didn't go to the game, we went out to dinner. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the lifeguard, um, the Secret Service came up to us and said, you have to finish your food in the kitchen. And, and you know, we all looked at them like, well, what is this all about? And they said, the people in the Rolhatspots are Serbians. They are angry as hornets and they are not holding candles. They're holding Molotov cocktails and they're about to march on the U.S. Embassy. And so we quickly finished our meal in the kitchen, went out the back door and drove home the long way that didn't take us past the, uh, the embassy. And I'm on the shortwave radio listening to our Marines pushing people off the fence, putting out 
fires where they're throwing Molotov co cocktails at us and hoping, just hoping upon hope that no one pulls a trigger, there are no guns fired or anything like this. <clears throat> we only have 25 riot police because the rest of the, the riot police were at the, at the football game. Because as you may have heard in Europe, uh, the, the fans get very rowdy at soccer games and oftentimes they'd stampede, um, people get killed and they have to, the crowds have to be controlled very carefully. So we were, I'm listening to that and I'm, I'm taking orders, giving orders, we're trying to deal with this. And at three in the morning, um, I, I came and what had happened was that the, 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 the soccer match was at the stadium here. Um, the embassy is here and this is where the train station is. And so everybody at the soccer match has to walk past the embassy to get to the train station. And one third just walks by one third stops and starts fighting with the Serbs and says, you shouldn't fight with our friends, the Americans. And there's this big brawl going on. This is thousands of people now. And then one third are drunk as skunks and they start picking up the cobblestones and throwing them at the embassy themselves just because it's the thing to do. And I'm watching this on our video cameras and by three in the morning, things subside. And then, and there are 25 like frightened police in riot gear, just kind of standing there trying to protect themselves. And all of this is flying over their head and whatnot. So at three, four in the morning, I come in to look at the full damage that was done. And we were the only, only the uh, second of two embassies, the first embassy that had had the same kind of, of uh, 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 attack on it was in Berlin, in Berlin, I should say. That's not, um, uh, in Berlin and in Copenhagen, we were the only US embassies that took this kind of attack. And, uh, and, and I spent days and weeks afterwards negotiating with and talking to the security forces in Denmark um, asking and trying to find out why did they give these people a permit to, to march? You know, they, everybody knew that the United States uh, was dropping bombs on the Serbians. This wasn't going to be a peaceful march. This was going to be an angry march. And at the end of the day, the Danes were very uh, generous and, and they uh, paid for the repair of all the damage, which was considerable to the embassy. And, and you know, we, we got through that, but it was an extremely... Uh, intense evening, very, very uh, fraught with uh, an uncertainty and, and danger. And luckily, no one on our Marine staff, our contingent got, got injured, and, and we were able to come through um, uh, ultimately in, in good shape with the help of the Danes and fixing the damage that had been done. So last question, do you have any advice for younger folks like me and my listeners for how we can help like make the world a better place. If we wanna be involved in like global affairs or the State Department, what should we do? Well, I think that's a very good question. And I think the answer, first of all, is that um, make sure that you understand whose values you're going to be following in the work that you do. Um, I highly recommend you read um, Washington's farewell speech because in it, he talks about six, what I call six columns or six uh, pillars of, of what it takes for the, this country to succeed. And if you go into the foreign service, if you go into business, no matter what you, what you end up doing, 
make sure that your values follow the same values that, that President Washington established when he left office back in, in 1796. One is that, that we are not, partisan politics is not a constructive way for us to argue about what the best thing to do is. We should work together. Yes, we can have different ideological orientation, but there are solutions that come from both sides and we should not let the politics dominate the discussion. Number two, we are all Americans. And he says that in, in, in his farewell address. And, and of course we all are Americans, but we don't behave that way now. And so rather than talking about our differences, we should be talking about the commonality between us. And that's something that uh, I think is incredibly important. Number three are the values that we as a country must adopt. Um, the freedom of religion, the uh, ability of us to understand and to work together um, in a way that is conducive to finding solutions instead of accentuating problems and differences. As I said earlier, the fourth he talked about is that we need to, to be fiscally responsible. Our fiscal responsibility has degenerated into a, a debt of over $30 trillion. When I was in Congress, um, to you it was a long time ago, but to me not that long ago, our debt was $5 trillion. And it has ballooned in the last five years um, at an exorbitant rate, yes, because of COVID, but also because we are just printing money like drunken sailors and spending it. And we need to be better controlled about that. Um, fifth is we need good education. Washington believed that we all should have a good education so that we can carry on in public discourse legitimate and um, well-reasoned arguments for doing things one way or another. It takes a good education to accomplish that. You're accomplishing that with these wonderful questions doing this program, but this is, this is the beginning. You're gonna do much more, I can tell. And then the sixth is that we should work internationally for peace and harmony, not in conflict. Now, um, in the Second World War, in the First World War, there, there were times when we have been involved in, in wars um, uh, because the conflicts were getting out of hand. Um, I would have said that uh, the, the 20 years that we spent fighting in Iraq and um, in Afghanistan, um, we had no real proof that we needed to be involved in those wars. We might have done a better job had we developed economic opportunity for the Afghanis or for the people in Baghdad. But, but because of the conflicts that we got involved in, uh, we have only sowed the seeds of, we have sown the seeds of, of greater discontent in the people of those countries. So Washington said, be involved in the international community, but do it for peace and harmony. So those are the six things I would recommend you, you become very familiar with and let those drive the, your decisions, whether you become an architect or a businessman or a politician or whatever it is that you choose to, to be as, as your profession, um, drive that ambition with a set of values that you know will always steer you in the right direction. Well, thank you for talking to me. This has been a great interview. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you again, Ambassador Sweat, for taking the time to do this interview with me. Uh, I really enjoyed making it. And to all my listeners, I hope that you listened and maybe take some of the advice that he gave us right there at the end.
that's about all I have to say today. So I'll see you guys next time on the Kai Kai Show.